When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're going to look at some characters, unsavory characters, that show up in the story or the general epistle of St. Peter, the second one. And yes, you'll get to meet them today. Welcome. A reading from the second general epistle of Peter. Bold and willful, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not bring them against them a slanderous judgment from the Lord. These people, however, are like irrational animals, mere creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed. They slander what they do not understand. And when those creatures are destroyed, they will also be destroyed. Suffering, the penalty for doing wrong. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. They have left the straight road and have gone astray, following the road of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of doing wrong, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Here endeth the lesson. Again, we have Peter in this epistle talking about these false teachers who have infiltrated the church and are very much present in the church of this early period. It didn't take long for Christianity to have several different opinions on similar subjects. This is before um, things like the Apostles' Creed are, are formalized, and certainly before the Nicene Creed is formalized to say, like, this is what we believe. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Um, While they certainly had certain confessional statements like that, um, that was not the main thrust of Christianity at that time. Believing in Jesus seemed to be the unifying feature of all first century Christianity believing that he was the Messiah, the promised one, prophesied in the Old Testament. We have numerous references to people saying that and talking about it and making that the point. When it came to most other beliefs, though, Christians would have probably been quite similar to most Jewish people that lived at that time when it came to things like heaven and hell and Um, sin and judgment and how to live a moral life in this world, which Christians 
still believe, we still believe that, that the Old Testament does show us um, certainly the way to live. The Ten Commandments embodying that moral code for the universe, not just for um, one particular group of people, but for everybody. Um, not that we can impose that um, on people by force in any way, but that is the standard. And that's why during Lent and other penitential seasons, we recite the Ten Commandments still in church. Many Anglican churches had the Ten Commandments on the wall, so you'd get to see them. The Ten Commandments function like an x-ray. They reveal what is inside us, what is what we are doing and what we are up to. They don't really fix us, ultimately, in that um, we never quite keep them perfectly, as Jesus taught, that it is the spirit of the law that is more important than the letter of the law. And in many ways, we have broken the spirit of the law, even though we have said we have kept the law very carefully. Jesus' whole life really centered on this. But these false teachers, um, they have a lot to say about um, the angelic entities that inhabit the earth. They, um, they have... Um, a superiority um, complex rather than an inferiority complex that they f- have this secret knowledge against about angels um, and yet angels um, kind of leave them alone this is and then um, Peter turns and says that they are like irrational animals um, I'm not sure what's going on here fully And we don't know what the false teachers would have said after reading this. And we don't know a lot about the false teachers he's talking about. We only know about them through Peter and Jude and some others who write about them. But they're very early folks, so they're not in some kind of formalized church or anything like that. But um, we can see this, um, this impulse in the New Testament to avoid to avoid controversies that don't really have to do with who Jesus is as a person and his salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. The other stuff um, can get really um, divisive and also uh, really enticing, especially for vulnerable people, as he says here. Um, The great chain of being is a concept that's often talked about when we talk about um, the angelic world and Christianity and the worldview and the way people saw the world for most of human history, that there was an order of things, an order being like kind of like a when you're in grade school, there's an order in the line. There's a line leader, and then the class chalkboard duster gets to go next, and then the class clown or I don't know, whoever that Um, hierarchy in that classroom is ordered for the line. Um, That is sort of how the universe works in the great chain of being. At the very top is God, and then below God are the angels, and then below the angels are humans, and below the humans are animals, and below the animals are plants. Um, That's sort of the very simplistic view of the great chain of being. 
Um, but even in that short little hierarchy, there's a million different subdivisions. In that great chain of being, men are usually over women um, in that chain of being. The fallen angels are below uh, the non-fallen angels. Um, the demons are below humans. Um, and then all the angels sort of get ranked in an order of importance in that same great chain of being. And here, Peter is using, it seems like, some of the concepts of the false teachers to show that, in fact, they are not at the top of the food chain. They are not at the top of the great chain of being. Although they claim to have this secret knowledge from God that nobody else has, although they claim that they know more than the angels and they slander these angels and kind of say that they have these secrets that even the angels don't have, um, that they are more like the, 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 the animals at the very bottom of the chain of being that aren't aware of the angelic entities around them and aren't aware of what's really going on in the world. Um, this, this kind of uh, thinking is really easy to get into in Christianity. Um, the, the, uh, the idea that, um, that somehow there is some secret to the Christian life. Uh, that there is just something more you need to know. And then once you understand that, um, then that unlocks the key to um, so many other things. And the, the only secret of the Christian life is that there are no secrets. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus were public events, especially the crucifixion. He hung there in public, uh, there in, there at a Roman crucifixion site on the, on the hill, um, on a mountain, if you will. So for all to see, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So this idea of, um, of Christianity is always the issue with, with false teachers that Peter and then later Christian writers are always addressing. Now, this is not to say that this stuff doesn't matter in any way. In fact, Peter writes about it extensively about the angels and their misdeeds in chapter two. We talked about that yesterday. Um, what he's saying though, is that these false teachers for the love of money, greed, and the enjoyment of manipulating people, um, generally in a sexual way, um, has led them astray. And he compares them to Balaam, son of Beor, or in this, um, in the Greek version, son of Besor, um, Bosor. Hard to know um, if this is a spelling error of the Greek um, name of the Hebrew, where he's Balaam, son of Beor, um, but here he's Balaam, son of Besor, um, who loved the wages of doing wrong. It's kind of a funny way to say it. He enjoyed the wages of doing wrong. And there was great reward. Balaam would get hired by certain people, kings and others, to go and curse various enemies. That was his little job as a prophet. Um, how he got that job, I don't know. Um, I think there'd be many qualified candidates for a job like that today. 
um, prophets who are paid to curse enemies. Um, kind of easy work when you think about it. There's always something wrong you can find in the world, <clears throat> especially about enemies. But this is his little job, and he gets paid to go do it. And while he's going to do it, his donkey that he's riding meets the angel of the Lord. And the donkey tell, warns him, and the, Balaam doesn't listen. And the donkey, um, you know, and he have this back and forth, which turns into a conversation, as it says here in Second Peter, verse 16. When he, but when he was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, I don't know what a donkey sounds like when he talks. There are lots of examples in cartoons, most notably Shrek. Um, Imagine the donkey might talk like that donkey in Shrek or maybe some other donkey. Um, The old joke of, I think the punchline is, I'm a little bit horse or I'm a little horse. That's a joke about ponies. Why Why the pony have a scratchy voice, because he was a little hoarse. I think that's the joke. But um, this donkey speaks to him. I don't know the voice of the donkey. I have imagine it sounded a lot like the voice that a donkey has normally. But this was what it took to get through to this prophet. So Peter is comparing the prophets to donkeys. He's saying, you're like these irrational animals that go around doing irrational things while you claim to have the secret knowledge that only angels have, that you know more than, more than the angels, but you're really like the donkeys, and you need a donkey. Furthermore, you need a donkey to stop you and to tell you. And so in some ways, Peter is putting himself in the place of the donkey and saying his warning to them and his warning to this early Christian community is the warning of Balaam's donkey, that you got to stop. There's an angel up there, and what you're doing for money, this cursing of God's people, which is that who he's, that's who he's hired to curse, is wrong. Sometimes we need people to stop us. Um, this is what he's, Peter's saying about these false teachers, that they um, are using their power the gifts that God gave them to deceive people, to build little kingdoms for themselves, and to, um, to exploit vulnerable people. Um, they're reveling in the daytime, um, whatever that means, that they're having parties. So um, there's something you can see about false, these false teachers is that they, they do like to have fun, um, and they have a lot of feasts, Their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, hearts trained for greed. Um, He's really laying it on them, um, that their whole program is to really just consume whatever they can for themselves. And the targets are always unsteady souls, which is probably all of us at one time or another. Um, We are all unsteady souls, um, at times. And when we're in unsteady times, we are often really susceptible to quick, get rich quick schemes, paths to success, 
that don't involve this kind of suffering that we're experiencing. Um, and this is what the false teachers have, are using to, um, to exploit people, the unsteadiness. This is the, where the church really has failed over the centuries. Um, the false teachers in the church have used people's weaknesses, their sadness, their loneliness, their, um, all the things that make up a human life in a time of crisis, have used that to exploit and to uh, do all the things that St. Saint Peter is warning this church about with these false teachers. Um, always promising some kind of liberation and healing and growth and hope, but ultimately making life worse for people. And that's what exploitation does every single time. And we can see it um, in the world around us with the scandals that are still rocking every single church um, in the United States and around the world. Seems like there's a new revelation every couple weeks about another um, abuser that was excused or hidden or not, um, not dealt with in any way. And it is that exploitation. So all children are vulnerable by the nature of being children. Um, that's a reality. And lots of grown-ups are vulnerable too. Um, lots of us at different times of our lives are really vulnerable. And so the church has to be a place of trust. And that's what Peter is reminding them of. He is far away and he wants them to know this. He loves them dearly, but he is very concerned that, this, um, that these leaders in the church, who are very much a part of things, um, are going to exploit the believers in the church. And that will not only hurt people, but will hurt um, the body of Christ in a very deep way. Um, that, that the trust of the church is something that we build little by little, and it can be really undone in a, in a short amount of time. So again, we listen to the words of Peter, and the word of God to us, that God can speak through a donkey. So what, is a don- what are the donkeys in our lives trying to tell us? The simple messages of warning, the simple messages of God's grace, the simple message that there's, more, there's enough in God's kingdom. You don't need anything extra. You don't need to, to be a prophet that curses people for hire, like in Balaam's case. We don't need to find a quick path to success. Ultimately, we are already successful in Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been reconciled. We have been adopted into God's family. We are regaining the image that um, was so marred in Adam's fall. We are on this quest with Jesus. And ultimately, there's nothing anyone can do to take that away from us. We have already been successful. You have already won um, Your salvation happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose from the dead. Um, And and reveling in that and glorying in that and boasting in that and being thankful for that is ultimately what Christian worship is, is declaring that reality that is so different than the reality we see around us so many times. Amen. Lord, now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, 
and to be the glory of thy people, Israel. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today is December 15th, and today we remember John Horton, bishop and missionary to Canada, in Canada. He was born in England, in Exeter, in 1828, and John Horton was apprenticed to the blacksmith's trade as a young boy and devoted his spare hours to self-education. He eventually became a qualified school teacher and attended the Vicar's Bible class at St. Thomas, Exeter, where he was educated in the Bible and in missionary work. Horton, along with some friends, volunteered his services to the Church Missionary Society, but was told to wait due to his young age. Um, we often think of these English clergy people coming from Oxford and fancy schools like that, but many of them um, came through the working classes, the blacksmith trade, um, or other jobs of manual labor. It was certainly rare, a rare thing in that day, but um, these stories like James Horton show that there were many paths to Christian work at that time, and in our time as well. In 1851, he received a letter informing him that he was being as a, appointed as a missionary schoolmaster in Moose Factory, James Bay, in the southern end of Hudson Bay, Canada. He immediately devoted himself to learning Cree, the native language of those whom he served over time, Horton's ability as a linguist was evident in his ability to function in no less than five First Nations languages plus Norwegian, English, Greek, and Latin. In addition to working with native peoples of the region, Horton regarded it as part of his work to serve the employees of the Hudson Bay Company. With their help, he built a schoolhouse and church and developed a variety of ministries to serve the people in this remote territory. He ministered to his people through several epidemics, often in the face of rugged, and unforgiving conditions. In 1872, he was recalled to England to receive Episcopal orders, and following his ordination at Westminster Abbey, he was appointed as the first bishop of the Diocese of Munashi and returned to James Bay. He traveled to the outer regions of his vast diocese, often by dog sled team in harsh weather. Many congregations in the small towns and cities of the area traced their formation 
back to the inspiring work of Bishop Horton. Horton died at Moose Factory on January 12, 1893. You can imagine how it must have felt to be consecrated as a bishop at Westminster Cathedral, which is one of the biggest places where they do the crowning of the queen and king and all that. Um, and then to go back to Canada, which um, was a pretty sparse, uh, sparsely inhabited place with uh, very difficult living conditions and not a lot of creature comforts. And that's often where God calls us, to places that are, are somewhat difficult and not always as comfortable or grand as, uh, as things that, other things that we've seen are. so we pray this collect, remembering James Horden. Creator God, or John Horden, excuse me, Creator God, whose hands holdeth the storehouses of the snow and the gates of the sea, and from whose word springeth forth all that is, we bless thy holy name for the intrepid witness of thy missionary, John Horden, who followed thy call to serve the Cree and Inuit nations of the North. In all the places we travel, May we, like him, proclaim thy good news and draw all into communion with thee through thy Christ, who with thee in the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. <laughs>